If you're able, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In 1983, one of the great cinematic moments of history occurred. An under-budgeted film uh, MGM was producing, and they didn't really want to make it. They'd become obligated. They didn't think it would work, so they committed only $4.4 million, which was then not considered a sum to actually make a movie that would have any following. Um, that sum was applied to produce uh, The Christmas Story which would become probably the greatest Christmas story of all time. It uh, only opened in 900 theaters and it quickly disappeared. And though the studio made a fair amount of money on it, it wasn't until HBO picked it up and started running it that the American public was actually exposed to the story of a pre-World War II family that was preparing for the holiday season and the young son who wanted nothing but a BB gun for Christmas. It's in the course of the movie that uh, if you've seen it, since it, since it now runs 24 hours straight every Christmas on Turner Networks, um, there's a point at which the father receives an award, and a great crate arrives at his house. And not really knowing exactly what he's won, he notices that the box says Frigile, and assumes that it's from Italy, only to be corrected by his wife, who understands it's safe fragile. 
Upon opening the box, he pulls out uh, this glorious prize that he has won, which is a lamp in the shape of a woman's leg, which he is so excited to have received, he runs to prominently display in the main window at the front of the house, much to his wife's chagrin. He was excited. He had won something. He thought it through in a certain way, but he hadn't perhaps thought it through completely or in the best of ways. And that is, I offer that only for you to get a sense of uh, David is beginning to think through something that he thinks is a good idea, and God will say no. So no, it's not the right time. And notice, too, at the beginning that Nathan jumps in and says, yeah, do what you, do what you intend, the Lord is with you, but neither one of them actually consult the Lord in the making of the decision. It's a rushing ahead. It's a, an attempt to build something that God isn't ready to have built and that God himself needs to build. And that's the point of the passage this morning that we're looking at. Is that God is the one who builds the house. And we should let him do it because our attempts to build the house ultimately fail. They ultimately end tragically. Now, how do we see that in the midst of our passage? Uh one of the most famous Old Testament scholars in the world today has said that 2 Samuel 7 is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. He says that because he believes that it is the clearest expression of what God intends to do. It's an exhibit of His grace in the movement of redemptive history. That there is a transition in 2 Samuel 7 that... Um, It's the clearest anticipation of what God will do in Jesus Christ, but it's also a very significant transition from where the Mosaic Law has been and where the people have been under the Mosaic Law. Well, what does all that mean? Where do we see this significance of this chapter is so important? I'd like to start at the end of the chapter and then work backwards a little bit. And we start to see some pretty profound, amazing, beautiful language about God's relationship to his people, and particularly to David and his descendants. So start at verse 13 with me, and let's just examine some of this language. In verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But in verse 15, even though there's discipline, my steadfast love will not depart from him. In verse 15, God makes the point that Saul, for his action, for his disobedience, was put away. But David and his descendants will not be. And in verse 16, God guarantees that David, his throne, and his kingdom are established forever. Now, what we see here is really a dramatic shift. A change in the way that God is relating to his people. Through David, his royal representative, the king that he has chosen to be over his people, as opposed to how his relationship with his people was articulated in the Mosaic Law. If we were to compare, just for example, keep in your mind what we have just looked at in 2 Samuel 7, and now consider Deuteronomy 30. God says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments, 
and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Do you hear the difference? The way this Old Testament theologian put it is, the Mosaic Law is characterized by an enormous if. Yes, God wants to bless you. He wants to uh, show you life, but that is dependent on your obedience. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. But now we get to 2 Samuel 7. The language is incredibly different. God is showing His grace to David and his descendants. There's no if. It's more of a nonetheless. right? Despite what you and your descendants may do, yes, I may have to discipline you, but my steadfast love will not be removed from you. I am guaranteeing your throne and your kingdom forever. It's a remarkable contrast. The great if of the Mosaic Law, obedience for blessing, but here we see something different. It is blessing preceding obedience. And there's a remarkable difference between the two. What is that difference? You know, an example that, that kind of demonstrates this well to me that I've used before was a class I took in seminary. Um, it, was, it was an elective, and it was, it was called Interseminary Seminar. And what it did was it took four or five students from five different local seminaries in Philadelphia and brought them all together and would assign one theme. And we would uh, we wrote one paper, presented that paper, argued over the papers in the midst of very different viewpoints theologically and ecclesiastically. It was really a very wonderful experience, one of the high points of seminary. But the class was pretty interesting in this. Number one, you had to be asked, and the faculty member who oversaw it would recruit you to participate in the class. And number two, there were no grades. It was pass-fail. And I worked more in that class by significant multiples than I did in any other class. Why? Easily I could have passed. Right? could have done a minimal amount of work, but there was no, that whole rubric of pass-fail, that threat of failure, that question of performance was removed, and basically the faculty member said, yeah, I want you guys to be a part of this. I think you're going to do great. Run with it. And we ran. We were free to do so. There wasn't really any, any consequence, and we, we just embraced the joy of getting to pursue what we wanted to pursue under this umbrella that was assigned. Now, if you were to take other classes in seminary that I didn't care for or didn't care for the professor perhaps, but there was also this great rubric of grading. You thought, oh, am I, am I making this grade or am I making that grade? And as soon as you introduce the grades, you introduce the fear of failure. And when fear is introduced, fear tends to rob joy. And this is the great, one of the great things is God's redemptive history is unfolding. There's lots of fear with the Mosaic Law. There's huge consequences. But as the story goes forward and it becomes more and more clear that, that, that humanity will never get a passing grade, God says, no, I'm engaging you in love and my blessing is going to precede my obedience. And I've hinted at it before. This is always the direction I've been headed. But now it gets disclosed in a new way. 
I'm for David, I'm for his descendants, I'm going to do something amazing here, and it won't be dependent on the obedience of David and his descendants. It's just going to be accomplished. And when grace precedes obedience in that way, there's great joy. There's great freedom, as there was for me in the midst of my inter-seminary seminar. Now, to recognize this at the end is an interesting place to start. One question that you should have in your mind is why, you know, David begins with, in essence, a question to Nathan, thinking about building God a temple. It's a good idea. Nathan says it's a great idea. Nathan then has a vision. God says it's not such a good idea. Nathan goes back to David. No, we're not going to do it. But at the end, you've got this, you've got God explaining in the midst of this vision to Nathan, this great promise, this great commitment to what's unfolding in the life of David and what's unfolding beyond him. Why is that part of the answer to the question, should I build a house for God? These are the dots now we have to connect. We have to understand that the place that God was driving to in his argument is, is saying, listen, you have to understand that I'm doing something radical. Grace is going to precede obedience, and you need to understand that in a new way. What does this have to do with the temple? Why didn't uh, God think that building a house for him was a good idea at this time? Well, look at verse 10. It's premature for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that it's premature is in verse 10. God says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The people of Israel have not really been established, not in the way that God intends, as a nation state in a particular geographical location with a particular amount of peace. And in verse 11, God says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So what we have here, God is saying, listen, this idea is premature. Number one, the people aren't established. And number two, David, your house isn't established. Yes, you live in a house of cedar, but the house that I intend to build, which is a great dynasty, is not yet established. It's not yet cemented. And so we realize, oh, okay, if that's not established, if that's not done, what would it mean if God then allowed the people to move forward with the building of the temple before they were established and before David was established and before these promises were made to David? You would have obedience, perhaps preceding blessing. Do you see, if God allowed for that to go forward, it might have been the worst Practical lesson for Israel ever. Because Israel could have said, and David could have said, oh, we've built this house for the Lord, and now he's established the people. We've built this house for the Lord, and now he's made David's dynasty complete. And if God had permitted that, it might have made the people to think utterly backwards about the unfolding of God's grace until he would correct it again. That idea is premature, and if it was enabled to go forward premature, it might ultimately uh, teach the people that their relationship with God is still bound up in obedience to receive grace. And it seems to be that God is making, even arguing that that's not the way he's been working with David the whole time. Because in verse 8 and 9, what does he say to David? I took you from the pasture. You were nothing but a shepherd boy. And I have made you king of my people. God, David hasn't made himself king. God has grown him up, has raised him, has has put him in the place of authority and power 
that he wanted him to have. It has all been God's doing. And this is the point that is being made to Israel and the people, that God's grace is preceding ultimately um, the obedience that might be shown forth in building God a temple. Now, it's not a no. God says, this will happen. Your son will do it. But it's premature, and it's also not right for another reason. And the other reason is that David has been engaged in too much warfare. He's shed too much blood. And you don't actually see that in 2 Samuel 7. It's a reason that's given both in 1 Kings and in 1 Chronicles that David's been engaged in so much bloodshed, it's inappropriate for him to build the house of the Lord. Well, that gave me... uh, that was hard for me to figure, to work with. Right? Because in both places, the bloodshed is really identified as the warfare David's been engaged in. David's warfare has been the conquest of the promised land. Right? Exiling those who are occupying the land that God has commanded the Israel move in and occupy. So if the bloodshed that David is engaged in has been nothing but obedience, then why would he be seemingly punished, maybe punished is a strong word, but kept from building God's temple for having done something that he was supposed to do. And so, a lesson for you, I had to ask for help because I couldn't make sense of it. And so when you are working through Scripture and come across one of the many things that are difficult to make sense of, ask for help. Ask one another. Spur one another on to understand Scripture better. And in this, I was helped by friends and uh, professors alike. And I think the sense is this, that God's presence is, is ultimately associated with the peace that he intends for Israel. And peace has not yet come upon the people. right? What we've been through is a period of war and a period of conquest. And David is really the end of the conquest of the promised land. He's... He's the king of conquest, but what, who follows him is Solomon. His, his name meaning king of peace. And he ushers in an age of peace. And so for God's presence to be associated with the lack of peace in the warfare is to confuse his identity. It's to confuse the ultimate promise that he brings to his people. God's presence will dwell in the midst of the peace that he's brought for his people. And so if the temple was associated too much with warfare and bloodshed, it would confuse, it would cloud the very notion of who God is and what his character is. And so it must wait for the coming of Solomon. But in this we have this amazing echo and cycle of redemptive history, which I think the authors of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles want to echo. In the sense that if you think about creation, God enters into the void, He enters into the chaos, and He begins to order it through the days of creation. Right? He wages war in a sense, to bring order, to be, bring completion, to bring peace against that chaos that exists. Now ultimately, even as He's very happy with what He's done, the peace and order that He's brought will be cast back into chaos by the sin of our first parents. And then they will be exiled. And so, redemptive history begins to move forward in a way in which you have, you see God periodically advancing order and peace and humanity messing that up and reintroducing chaos again. And so we have it here, right? David, God's regent, has finally brought the conquest to an end. Warfare has been had. 
but order has, has been, has been achieved and peace is coming, particularly under Solomon. And God's presence then may come to dwell in the temple amongst his people. When you look back at, at creation in the fall, you, you, there's despair, but you move forward to this point in time in which David is successful and there's the promise to David's son and you realize, oh, the story is still moving forward in a way in which God is still committed to exerting, again, his order over the chaos of sin and evil. He's at war. And the campaign keeps going on. Sadly, the uh, order that is achieved under David and then under Solomon will, of course, be cast back into chaos. Humanity won't be faithful. David's sons won't be faithful. Chaos is reintroduced because they love the wrong things. They love bad things. And so they, they move away from God. And again, chaos erupts and results. And ultimately, we wait again for the Spirit of God to come again. But this time, it's not housed in a temple of brick and mortar. It's housed in a temple of human flesh. God's presence comes in the person of Jesus. And you think great victory, and indeed it is great victory, but that temple is also demolished. Jesus refers to himself as the temple that must be torn down and that he will rebuild, and indeed it is rebuilt. But then he ascends. We have found ourselves again longing for the presence of God. Right? There's, there's, God, God pushes forward under David and under Solomon, and there's great victory, and then chaos and evil come back. And then God pushes forward in a much greater fashion in the person and work of Christ, and Christ ascends. And we're left thinking, well, where is the presence of God? And then Pentecost happens. And the Spirit is poured out. Again, not on a building, but upon flesh, upon you. We realize that God is still building a temple. But that temple no longer exists in a structure, but exists in the people that he has called unto himself and united to Christ. And this is the way Peter describes it in uh, his letter, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see that you now are the temple. In you, the Spirit dwells. You are the very representation of God's continuing warfare against the powers of sin and evil and chaos. What does that mean? What what does it mean that we are the temple and that we participate in that battle? What does that actually look like for us? It begins where God ended in this portion of Scripture by always understanding that grace precedes obedience. You know, boy, what a tension. You know, it, it's one of those things that if you think about, it just really, it's, it's, it's hard to get your mind wrapped around. It's a tension that's been throughout the church. It's not a new tension, and it's not a tension that we're going to solve this side of glory. And it's a tension that we always have to work hard to balance because preferring one side to the other leaves us in a place inevitably of sin, inevitably of moving away from God, inevitably of not being the temple that we're called to be. But if we say, well, it's all God's grace, 
and I'm just waiting and relying upon Him, then we neglect that we should participate in obedience. But if we should err and say, well, obedience is really part of what brings the blessing, then we start to talk about earning things from God. And that's not the relationship that He's created between us. And it's even hard in the New Testament. You see people running to one Scripture or another. Well, we're saved by grace through faith, and so these works, they're not of ourselves. They're a gift of God. Yeah. But then others will run to the letter to the Laodiceans in the, in, in the book of Revelation. They say, Jesus is ready to spew them out of his mouth because they're neither hot nor cold, they're lukewarm. We say, well, what, is it grace? Is God doing this? Or am I responsible? And there's some risk involved in this. And the answer is yes. And when you fail to hold those intention, again, you go in a bad direction. You have to understand that grace precedes obedience, but if that dismisses your obedience, then you've never understood grace. I think what we see here is something that should remind us. I mean, it's enormous what's happening in 2 Samuel 7. That God would so graciously dispose of himself. I mean, take a step back and hear what God is saying. Right? The God, the creator of all things, the one who is holy and perfect and just, the one who doesn't have a dwelling place, David says, I want to build you a house so we can worship you. And he says, no, I'm going to build your house first. The, the humility, the condescension, the grace. No, I want to establish your house first. That's the way that you're really going to understand who I am. And then, at the appropriate time, we'll establish my house. But then ultimately you learn that you as a people are going to be my house. And then we'll dwell ultimately perfectly together. And so there's this, there's this cosmic level, the second Samuel 7, which I've already described to you that, that God is pushing forward against sin and evil and chaos, and He makes strides, and then chaos seems to rear its ugly head. And we move forward and we find ourselves on the other side of Christ, the other side of Pentecost, in which God has again made great strides against chaos and sin and evil, but it is not permanently defeated. You know that well. It exists in your life. It exists in your world. But you look. If you're one of faith, if you believe that God is, is in every case moving forward and ultimately moving to the permanent exile of sin and death and chaos, right? then that's where you look. Our eyes are forward. And we trust in that future to act in the present. And that's the cosmic reality that we're looking at. But there's a community reality as well, that we now, being the temple, are called to be a royal priesthood. Two, to minister with one another that the sacrifices we produce together would be pleasing to God, that they would be good and acceptable and perfect, as Paul describes in Romans 12. And so how do we invest in that? How do we invest in one another and spur one another on? You know, what, what would it mean if we were a community in which you went to someone and said, I love you, I don't know that you're that your gifts are all they could be. That would be a hard thing to say. It would also be a terribly loving thing to say. You know, I, I think if we work together, you can help me to bring better sacrifices, and I can help you to bring better sacrifices. And in that very endeavor, God will be more glorified, and we will be more renewed. Do we dare to participate in such an endeavor? But there's the individual reality of understanding and applying this as well, that 
You know, and the great danger, I think, particularly in the age and period in which we live, is that when we hear of God's grace, we understand grace, we live in a tradition that celebrates God's grace, and all of that is well and good and true. But sometimes grace, when it is misunderstood, stalls obedience. So we think Jesus has done it. It's all taken care of, and I don't really have to wrestle and work hard against my sin. There was a good example of... um, this in a wonderful book I'm reading called The Curate's Awakening uh, by George MacDonald. And uh, it takes place a couple hundred years ago when people who deal in cloth are called drapers. I'm not sure exactly when that is, but uh, just to set the stage for you. And it's a story, a curate in this time period was a, a minister, a, a pastor. And it's a pastor who's realized that he's been engaged in ministry but hasn't really understood what he's doing hasn't really understood necessarily the gospel and is being awakened and starts to engage the community in in new ways, in ways that are waking up the community. And uh, he runs into the draper in his shop selling cloth, and the draper's in his congregation. He says, you know, what you've been saying lately has been very challenging. He says, you know, I was very sure that I was uh, an honest man. I've I've never intentionally swindled anyone. I feel like I'm one of the most honest men in the community. But then you even, you made me question whether or not I'm honest. But not only that, you made me question if I'm a Christian. Because he posed the question, essentially, do you really understand grace? Does grace produce obedience? Do you not have obedience? Then do you understand grace? And this is how it goes in the book. The Draper speaking to uh, Wingfold, the minister. You said in your sermon last Sunday, and especially to businessmen, do you do to your neighbor as you would have your neighbor do to you? If not, how can you suppose that the Lord will acknowledge you as a disciple of His? That is, as a Christian. Now, I was even sure of being a Christian than of being an honest man. I had satisfied myself, more or less, that I had gone through all the necessary stages of being born again. And it has now been many years since I was received into a Christian church. At first, I was indignant at being called to question from a church pulpit whether or not I was a Christian. You sent me to try myself by the words of the Master instead, for he must be the best theologian of all, mustn't he? And so there and then I tried the test of doing to your neighbor as you would be done by. Do you hear what's going on for the draper? The draper thinks he understands grace. I'm part of God's temple. I'm being built up, been called. I confess all of this. I'm on the inside. And the preacher says, okay, well, this is the way Jesus describes being on the inside. You're someone who does unto your neighbor as you would have them do to you. And the draper has to think, well, do I really live that way? You know, there's a difference between being honest, as culture understands honesty, and then doing unto my neighbor as I would actually want them to be to do to me. And if I haven't been faithful to thou Jesus describes faithfulness, then I haven't been obedient. And if I haven't been obedient, do I really... Am I understanding grace? Really? And this is the question that the businessman, a very good question, has to struggle with. And ultimately he does, and he... He draws near to the Lord and has a new understanding of God's grace, that God's grace is not only to save him from his sins, but to make him a new man that really would wholeheartedly love his neighbor as himself. 
And so he begins to love the community in deeper ways that uh, cost him more. He begins to um, minister to the poor in the one particular way in the book that he does this is there are a number of, of widows uh, uh, who have been uh, widowed by the war. I'm not sure what war it is. And, uh, but, nonetheless, it doesn't really matter. The way he expresses love to them is to sell at cost to them. He makes no profit without telling them. And this is his, a way in which he begins to love his neighbor as himself. Begins to go beyond the cultural definition of being honest or having an easy, yeah, so I understand grace in the church, to, oh, this is what it actually means to be formed as part of God's temple. Bringing him glory and existing in a new way that represents his glory, his presence in the world. And in that, the character of the draper becomes part of the ongoing war. The ongoing advance against sin and death and evil and chaos and all the despair that would be going on in a widow's life, some of that is remedied by the love of Christ that is thrown, shown through the draper to the person, to the widow, who comes into his shop. Second Samuel 7 gives us a picture of God's love. The love of a God who, rather than having a house built for himself, would instead desire that the right house is built for David and his people, that the story of redemption might go forward. And you know what? That temple is important, but it pales in comparison to the temple who is Christ, which establishes the temple that we are right here. Do we understand grace? Do we define grace casually? Do we find God's movement and love toward us, His great nonetheless as compared to the mosaic if, casually and taken for granted, as if, sure, we deserved it? Or do we, having our hearts moved by that, then pursue with real intention and real discipline and real activity what it means to be the temple of the Holy God. And that we learn what it means to be transformed. And that we learn what it means to come and experience the love of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You. We thank You that You remarkably would demonstrate Yourself to be a God who in one sense, puts, puts off his own worship to establish his people in a place that they might understand grace so that they might worship better. And so it is for us. We pray that you would help us to understand rightly the grace that has been poured out in Christ. We hope that you would, you would help us to understand the love and the affection that you have, that rather than destroying us, and rather we, we live in the exact same time period that you have put off the end. You have put off the final temple when your, your presence is the glory of all things so that we might be established in your grace. And for that we give you thanks and pray that we would look forward with faithfulness and that it would make us long to be every bit your temple. Uh, that we have been called to be. Make us so by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.